You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Thanks for tuning in to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers, and joining me today is Randy Smallwood. He is the president and CEO of Wheaton Precious Metals. This currently is about an $18 million U.S. royalty and streaming company, so typically a company much bigger than the ones we usually talk about on the show. But uh, these are the first movers. When gold moves, these are the type of companies that move first, and they're the most reliable investments in the mining sector, a low-risk high return possibility without 80% losses that we often can see in the exploration companies. I asked Randy to come on the show to talk about his company, but also the gold mining sector in general. So Randy, thank you for joining me for the first time. Bill, a real pleasure. And uh, just a correction, it's an $18 billion company, not an $18 million company. (laughs) You know, you're you're correct. And I meant to say billion, but sometimes uh, I think one thing and, and say something else. That's just three zeros. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and if you were 18 million, you probably wouldn't qualify to trade on the New York Stock Exchange either, right? Exactly right. <laughs> yep. Okay, so yeah. in the gold mining sector, inflation is the key word. Oil price through the roof, supply chain issues. When you're talking to gold mining CEOs, uh, what are their current thoughts on inflation and how it's impacting the sector? Well, it's a real issue. It's been a real issue actually for a long time. Um, the mining industry, when you t- when you look at the costs and 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 just the costs of building operations, but also of consumables and such, uh, you know, all you have to do is look at the price of diesel, uh, which is one of the biggest consumables in in any mining operation, and uh, look at how how you know oil prices have changed. And so, there's no doubt it is becoming a real issue. It is something that I know when we're doing our due diligence and looking at new opportunities, it is something that we really put a lot of focus into in terms of making sure that the companies have the financial capacity. It is one of the reasons that we always push for first and second quartile um, assets is really just to, to make sure that, uh, that, that you know, the, the assets have the capacity to manage the impact of inflation and move their way, you know, and, and, and still be profitable to all stakeholders. And of course, you know, that's a real important aspect of it. It has to be profitable to all stakeholders, not just the streaming company, not just the operator, but to all the other stakeholders around that also have to uh, have to be able to, to, you know, thrive through that. And so, uh, so yeah, inflation's a real issue. We're seeing good, you know, uh, cost pressure on a lot of different operations. You know, any of the deals that we've done recently, we are monitoring it. And it, it appears that uh, the operators have done a good job in terms of capturing that risk in their contingencies or, or taking measures to try and firm up prices beforehand. It's a matter of just making sure that we invest in the high margin assets because high margin assets will always uh, survive or thrive the best through uh, through an inflationary environment. But there's no doubt. All you have to do is look at the, the raw consumables to understand that inflation is very real. It's been in the mining industry for a while, and I think the rest of the world is really waking up to it now. So your company is exposed to the upside a lot of these gold producers when you buy your stream of royalty without the downside risk. But when one of the producers that you hold a royalty or stream on uh, encounters some difficulties, do they ever call you and ask for help? How does that relationship work? Well, you know, to be honest, uh, and I think if there's one thing that differentiates Wheaton, uh, 
it should never wait for them to call us. Uh, we spend a lot of time working with our partners. Uh, you know, we, there's there's a lot more to a stream than just signing the deal and handing over the cash up front. We, we you know, visit the assets on a regular basis. We're in regular communications. You know, we owe that to our shareholders. Um, that's what we have to deliver back is confidence in terms of how the operations are running and uh, and how things are moving, you know, moving forward so that we can report accurately to our shareholders. And so, so it's a real key key aspect of, of, of making sure that. So, I mean, if it ever gets to the point where they have to call us, that's a, that to me is a, a flaw in the system. We need to stay on top of these assets. We have an overlying mantra in our company, the stronger our partners are, the stronger we are. And so we are always looking for ways to try and add value and try and support our partners to become stronger. So if we see things that we're a little bit nervous about or concerned about, then we'll sit down and, 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 and have those discussions I've always said there's there's three ways we deliver value to to our partners post the upfront payment. You know, the first one is technical ambassador program where we actually supply technical expertise at no cost to try and help our partners do better. Second one is, of course, our, our strong ESG programs or CSR programs where we provide, we co-fund a lot of uh, community programs around the mine sites. Uh, you know, the first of the streaming and royalty companies and by far and away the leader in that space in terms of actually delivering something back to the other stakeholders around the mine sites, our neighbors and such. So a very, very important uh, aspect of it. But the third leg that we deliver value post the upfront payment is that, that uh, you know, unlocking value uh, leg where we're always looking for ways to try and help um, all stakeholders create more value. And so we're open to, uh, you know, it's one of the advantages, I think, of streams is that it's a contractual partnership. And so, you know, we, we're always looking for ways to deliver that extra value. And if there's a way we can adjust the contract to help our partners be stronger, in the long run, we'll gain from that too. So uh, we're always uh, looking for ways to deliver that extra value. Randy, there was a recent survey uh, of mining CEOs that were surveyed, and their greatest concern is ESG, not even inflationary issues in this environment, the report concluded. Now, there, there could be um, the good things about that, but also, as I talk to fellow retail investors, there's a lot of concerns, especially from the retail investor perspective, of some of the onerous and hindering aspects of a lot of the ESG requirements to where like a, a mining exploration company is having trouble getting a permit due to increased uh, demands from the ESG side of the business. Uh, from Wheaton's perspective, I know ESG is a big issue, but do you also see some of the maybe the hindering aspects of the current ESG movement and how the mining uh, uh, sector can advance? Well, the ESG is part of sound business operation. I mean, you know, but it does come down to managing expectations. Um, and I really do think it comes down to education. Uh, the, the A lot of communities, one of the things that the world does suffer from is a little bit of, uh, I guess, for lack of a better acronym, uh, nimbyism, uh, not in my backyard. Everyone's happy to have the smartphones and the electric vehicles, but they don't want the mines in their neighborhood. They want it to come from somewhere else. And and that's, you know, that's a real challenge. And I do think that society has to recognize that, that you know, face it, the mining industry is, is, is pretty well the start of every supply chain. And, and, and if we're not going to support that, it just weakens the supply chain all the way down, makes things more expensive. And so, you know, that then it comes back to being responsible business operators and recognizing that there's more than just your shareholders that you're working for. You know, at Wheaton, we've always focused on all of our stakeholders. Our shareholders, of course, that's who I work directly for. But our partners are also incredibly important. And even more important is, uh, is our neighbors. Um, we're 
we get our social license to operate. And if we don't have that social license to operate, we're stuck in the water. We're stuck in the mud. It's not even water. Stuck in the stuck in the mud. And so I would say that you know generally, and especially you know the the, the partners and the companies that we invest into, it's not uh, most of the ESG uh, is 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 just coming down to disclosure. Uh, sound business practices have always involved good, strong support for community programs, or, you know, around uh, around the mine sites and, and recognizing that you need that strong social license. And now it's a matter of documenting, you know, the efforts that I think good, strong business practices have delivered forever. And, 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 and if you don't have that, it usually catches up to you. And so, you know, we're always investing for the long term, which means you need to deliver some of those values back to the other stakeholders, to the neighbors, to the communities and, and such. And, and I, I don't think it's ever a burden. I mean, if, it, if it's that problem where an asset can't deliver that, then, uh, then perhaps you've got to go back and look at the economics. I think, it's, I think it's to the point where you just have to manage expectations and understand that, you know, one of the challenges of all mining industries is so capital intensive. And so there's a, there's a huge capital risk, um, you know, building the infrastructure and building the actual asset itself before you see any of that actual cash flow coming out of those operations. And so, so as long as communities and, and, and society itself recognizes um, that those long-term benefits will come through a uh, sound and supported uh, operation, resource operation. Um, you know, again, it comes down to managing expectations. From my perspective, uh, like particularly in the U.S. where I reside, there seems to be a d- disconnect on the, the energy front and also the, the resource front in terms of what the government is telling us we need in terms of copper production, nickel, uranium, all of these things, and then the policies and, and the ease of permitting. <laughs> and I, I'm not arguing for hurting the environment or hurting local communities, but I just see a huge disconnect there. Um, what's your take on the permitting risk, jurisdictional risk in my country, the United States? Well, have you ever heard of a project named Rosemont? <laughs> trying, to, trying to get a permit for over 20 years. And, you know, from a Wheaton perspective, uh, we, we do minimize our risk. We put in very little capital ahead of the permit itself. Usually most of our, the bulk of our capital always comes in after the permit is actually delivered. So, so we actually don't take the permitting risk ourselves. But nevertheless, you know, uh, the, the, the Rosemont project in Arizona, which, you know, I believe the license plate says the copper state, um, but the, 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 you know the the Rosemont project, and and now being called uh, you know Copper World by Hud Bay, and they're being forced to operate entirely on private lands in order to move this project forward. And this is in a region that's got a long, long history of of good solid copper production. Uh, you know the area around Tucson and Arizona has got got lots of historical uh, you know lots of history in the copper mining industry. And so, so you know I, I look at this and and I and I see you know one hand the federal government encouraging you know, a shift towards greener environment and, you know, greener uh, practices moving towards electrification and such, uh, you know, all of which needs copper. And on the other hand, uh, putting up roadblocks to to allow a very well-engineered, very well-designed copper project to, to not proceed. And, uh, you know, there's just a challenge with it. And as I mentioned earlier on in, in, in this um, nimbyism, not wanting it in your backyard, but also wanting all the benefits of, of it, uh, it's a real challenge. It's Society just has to recognize that that there are going to have to be mines. We need mines. They are the start of every supply chain in this world. You need resources. You need resources even for growing, for agriculture, the minerals, the fertilizers that come from that. They all come from the earth. And so, so we, you know, society has to recognize that that 
there are places for mines and places where there shouldn't be mines. But when we select and, and identify an operation, we should, as a society, provide as much support as we can. So you're not uh, increasing costs, because generally that what that means is a higher environmental impact. Uh, I look at the design that, that HUD Bay has come out with on the Copper World project, where they're being forced to haul materials and, and store materials in in square pieces of property only because of tenure. And, and I just think of the inefficiencies that are going to come into that. And those inefficiencies, you know what that is? That's extra diesel being consumed and, and pollution into the environment because of because of what? Um, this project is going to go forward. It's a history of, you know, it's in a, it's in a region that's very proud. And so it is, it is a bit frustrating that we see, you know, the left hand talking about needing these materials and, and having to get stronger, especially from the United States perspective, and the right hand, you know, putting up roadblocks to stop good quality, well-designed projects in, in areas that have history, uh, you know, mining, good, strong mining history. Um, it, it is a bit frustrating and, uh, and, and it just, it, it can't continue. The challenge is, is that every time you stop a well-designed, well-engineered, well-regulated uh, project in a jurisdiction like that, you probably shift that copper production to some other area that may not have as high of environmental standards, may not have as high a regulatory framework. And, you know, the world needs this product. The real world needs this material. Um, so why not take advantage of the fact that you have an abundance of resources, select the areas that should be mined, and, and then provide as much support as we can so that we mine those, those minerals as efficiently and, and, and cleanly as, as we possibly can and, and deliver a good solid product Product, uh, a good solid made in America product, and Hud Bay has has you know uh, gone a long ways towards that at the Rosemont project. They just released their PEA earlier this week, and and, and they're even looking at uh, you know um, refining the copper on site to have a truly made in America copper product. But but the inefficiencies that are being forced upon them by this regulatory framework is is embarrassing. It truly is embarrassing. Um, someone should step back and look at this and recognize how much extra waste is happening because of what Hud Bay is being forced to do on this project. Excellent answer, and I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, when it comes to Wheaton's ideal investment in 2022, can you give us some of the general characteristics of your ideal investment right now? Well, we're we've been extremely busy. We've uh, in the last year and a half, we've probably uh, closed uh, well. There's nine different transactions on eight different assets. Uh, put about a billion and a half dollars to work. And if you look at that that collection of assets, um, it's a, there's a lot of single asset development companies right now. Commodity prices are strong. Uh, there's no doubt. And so anyone that's got operations in play generally is 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 generating very, very good internal cash flows. But if you're a single asset development company that doesn't have operating cash flow coming into the uh, onto the balance sheet, you have to source capital somewhere to fund your growth. Uh, debt is always available for good quality projects. And, and, and we are very, very selective about what we invest into. So generally, everything we invest to would be you know, lendable. But the challenge is, is the, the banks, the lenders will not fund all of the capital. You do need to supply that equity, uh, that equity piece in terms of funding that growth to become an operating company. And what we have seen is a real niche for the streamers and specifically for Wheaton, where we've had great success 
is 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 providing some of that construction financing on the equity side of the equation as these companies become producers and uh, and you know very very exciting because it what it has done is given us probably the strongest growth prof- profile in I would say in the entire precious metals industry especially with the uh, you know the larger companies you know this year we expect to do about seven hundred and thirty thousand gold equivalent ounces. I think within four years, we'll be well over 900,000 gold equivalent ounces and probably getting pretty close to a million gold equivalent ounces within about four or five years out. Uh, you know, we've got some really exciting projects that will be delivering production to us over the next few years. That uh, and, and that is our market. When we talk about 2022 and what we see, there's definitely still a healthy appetite for this single asset development companies to fund using streaming. It just makes incredible sense. Most of these companies are trading at at, at PNAV multiples, uh, price to net asset value multiples of around 0.2 to 0.4, uh, well below their net asset value. And uh, and so for them to issue shares into the market to fund the equity piece of their, it, it's very expensive to their existing shareholders, very dilutive to their existing shareholders. Whereas when they can when they can do a stream on a non-core precious metals byproduct. And get close to you know full value for that net, from a net asset value perspective, it it just makes incredible sense. And so we've got a long list of companies that are lined up looking for uh, for additional streaming, and confident that we'll be able to add at least a couple more transactions this year. A single asset developer, what's your time frame for return on investment? How long are you willing to wait for uh, that return of cash flow? It, you know, it's different for every project. It always it always depends on on project timing. Sometimes we will sign the deal before the permits are received, but we of course again do not supply a lot of the capital until the construction is underway, which is after permits have been received. And so, typically, most of the mines are about two to three year builds, or you know, some of them are even uh, shorter than that. I know Rio Two at the Phoenix project is uh, is a very short build. It's a very simple project. Um, you know, a nice simple heat leaching, crush and 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 stack and leach, and so. You know, some of them are shorter and some of them are longer. Um, you know, Sabina has got uh, the Goose Lake project up in northern Canada, which is a remote fly-in site. So logistically, a little bit more challenged to get infrastructure in there. But uh, the team is doing a really good job in moving that one forward. And so it's on track to to uh, be delivering relatively. So we're, we're typically, most construction projects are going to be a two to three-year period. We always factor that into how we value it. And, uh, you know, we're, we're happy again, you know, it is a relationship. And so we do spend a lot of time talking if there's delays or challenges or, or even capital needs. You know, we're always happy to expand the stream. If there's a, you know, you talked about inflationary pressures a bit earlier on, we expect to see that's going to be a continuing issue with respect to, to uh, you know, constructing um, uh, new projects. We're always happy to, in any of these projects, they've all got capacity to expand the streams. And so it's nice that the operators know they have that that uh, that support in their back pocket if it's required on a go-forward basis. But we're typically two to three years before we see production out of most of these assets. Uh, you prefer a stream over a royalty then? Oh, streams are much uh, much better than royalty. First off, they generate a bit more value on a per ounce basis than a royalty does. Second off, they've got incredibly much more flexibility in terms of managing it. It's a partnership. It's a relationship between two parties. A royalty is just a registration on land. We have seen royalties disappear through bankruptcy process. So I think the 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 you know the the rumor that royalties have better security, uh, you know, uh, our our approach has always been just invest into assets that don't go bankrupt in the first place, and and that. 
removes that risk. But uh, you know, the, the the streaming it's a contractual partnership that can be managed. It can be adjusted to unlock additional value. It's got so much more flexibility than royalties. And so, uh, you know, in fact, I think the industry believes that if you sit and look at it, nobody creates new royalties in the precious metal space. Uh, generally, uh, the only time you see royalties coming uh, out, new royalties being created, is when its uh, assets haven't had any success. There's no resource to be defined. It's it's basically greenfields expiration uh in canada we call it moose pasture <laughs> um, and so that's the only time you actually see royalties being created uh, streams of definitely even the traditional royalty companies they're uh, all their all their large-scale projects all their new projects are all uh streams it just makes more sense randy when i go through the presentations of much smaller uh gold royalty companies they lift up the exploration upside that they have exposure to uh, Wheaton's exploration upside with where you have your streams and royalties. Can you give us a glimpse of uh, what you have there? Well, it's uh, it's very good because these are life of mine agreements, and the bulk of our agreements don't have any drop downs or any uh, any uh, any significant. None of our agreements have significant drop downs. We never uh, never had any drop downs more than about a third, um, and so uh, we've already got. Well, uh, I guess I can't say. I think I was just about was going to say 60 years of reserves and resources, but you're not allowed to add inferred to measure and indicated and so on. So it's about 40 years of, of high confidence reserves and resources and another 20 years of, of inferred resources. And so, again, one of the advantages that we have in the streaming business is that we provide in precious metals investors access to precious metals production from large scale base metal operations. And that gives us a very unique perspective. What I would say is we, we one of the best attributes of the base metal space is that because base metal mines are so capital intensive, they need very big resource spaces before companies will commit the capital to building these things. Um, whereas in the gold space, typically much lower capital intensity, and therefore you only need about 15 year mine life before your 10 to 15 year mine life before you commit going forward on a gold mine. And so, you know, what we get is the best of, our, I would say, both those worlds. We get the 60-year mine lives out of, out of good, strong base metal operations, but it's from a precious metals uh, perspective. We get the precious metals from these mines. And so, so here we are as a precious metals company with, I would say, the, the strongest reserve and resource portfolio in the entire precious metals industry. Good, strong growth going forward, as I mentioned earlier on, climbing to a million, uh, climbing very close to a million gold equivalent ounces currently. And, and, and you know, with a few more transactions, likely over a million gold equivalent ounces annual production, uh, um, you know, within the next four or five years um, is, is not unreasonable. We, you know, we're on, we're well on a path towards that. From an expiration perspective, these are life of mine agreements and life of mine on some of these assets is a very, very long time. And so we have, we've had great expiration success. We've pretty well replaced, I think, every ounce, if not even, I think we're ahead in terms of ounces mined versus ounces um, uh, discovered and added to the reserve and resource space since 2004 when we created the company. And so to be able to be sustainable in terms of replacing that expiration success and all the production that we're delivering back to our shareholders really highlights good quality mines um, always have. And again, focusing on high margin assets means that our partners will always preferentially spend more expiration dollars trying to expand and grow those resources. And so the focus on high margin assets is, is incredibly important in terms of running a successful streaming company. So you have a lot of exposure to gold and silver. What about platinum and palladium? I believe it's about 10%, if I recall, of your portfolio. And are you looking to grow the platinum and palladium exposure of the company? 
Well, we currently have uh, um, palladium exposure comes from the Stillwater mine uh, operated by Sabania Stillwater uh, in, in Montana. It's an incredible asset that's got, well, it's got 40 kilometers of strike length and uh, it'll be a mine forever. Uh, and so we get some palladium from that mine. And then uh, the only platinum exposure we have is we've just recently signed a deal with Generation Mining on the Marathon Project in Canada. And we'll be getting some platinum from that when it gets up and running. Now, they're still running through the permitting process. They haven't started construction yet. So that's probably going to be a good three, four years out before we see any of that platinum uh, production. So from a palladium perspective, you know, I, I actually think it's a little bit less than 5% right now in terms of revenue share. Um, we do have some cobalt production from the Voices Bay operation, uh, um, Vale's Voices Bay operation in Newfoundland, Canada, which I would argue is the cleanest, greenest, most environmentally sound, most socially responsible cobalt produced in the world. It's a, it's an incredibly efficient operation, um, uh, a dedicated smelting facility down in on, on the island of Newfoundland itself that's a hydromet smelter and uh, all of the power being consumed there comes from hydroelectric energy. So so a very, very um, uh, unique uh, product being produced in the cobalt world and something that I that I know will unlock additional value as the world continues to get more and more concerned about provenance and, and where your where your metals and minerals come from. And so, you know, altogether, uh, a little bit of cobalt, we're not chasing the cobalt. This was a unique opportunity to work with an existing partner on a new project that they were trying to build, but we're not actually out looking for cobalt. We Did you get investor though, pushback on that when you announced it? Did investors give you a little pushback like that deviated from what they thought they were investing in? I think investors were more upset about the fact that, you know, uh, right after we announced the investment, cobalt prices dropped substantially. <laughs> now, uh you know, we we didn't we didn't we weren't taking any delivery until the start of 20, uh, 2021. Uh, that was when the contract actually started. So we signed the deal in two thousand and eighteen, and by the time twenty twenty one came back, prices had rebounded beautifully. And so you know, we we don't get any pushback. Okay, <laughs> it's a it's a nice it's a nice little side investment. Um, you know, prices have actually done very well for us in the cobalt space. And so, so, uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're not getting that. There was, there was more concern about the fact that we made the investment knowing long-term that we were very bullish in, on cobalt prices, but it was at an elevated price back in 2018 when we signed the deal. Uh, we did use a very, a much lower uh, price in terms of valuing that deal than what the spot price was back in 2018. So, and Voices Bay is an incredible ore body that that hasn't been, ex, you know, um, fully explored to, by any means. They've got deep drill holes there that show that the ore body continues to depth and and they just haven't got to the point. It's because it's so expensive to drill deep. It's uh, they're going to wait until they get a, a better platform underground to expand those reserves and resources. So it's a, it's a mine that's going to be operating for many, many years for us and of course cobalt is is an important mineral so but you know in terms of in terms of mineral mix we are focused on gold and silver uh we started off as a silver focused company but there's just not enough opportunities in the silver space and so gold is definitely when i look at the opportunity set in front of us right now we're probably about two-thirds gold uh probably about 20% mixed gold and silver and then a little bit of silver and and the 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 rare platinum palladium opportunity we're we're very sensitive to political risk which means that takes out a lot of platinum and palladium production so then if you look at a non-precious metals investment possibility you just do so on a case by case basis you're not actively looking beyond precious metals 
Yeah, I think it's more, um, you know, we look at everything, but mainly it's more just to build up the knowledge base to understand what our peers are doing. We never really expect to step into those things. We're not going to, we're not chasing that stuff. And so therefore we're not bidding aggressively on it. And if we do wind up with something in that space, it's because we got a very good deal. And, uh, and so, you know, what we call, <laughs> we'll put stink bids in on a lot of stuff just, uh, just, just to keep our, uh, our competitors honest. Um, but but we're not really pursuing any of that stuff. We're really focused on the precious metals. Again, first quartile, second quartile mines in the precious metal space. That's our real focus. So at an 18 billion with a B US market cap, what is your greatest challenge to growth? How are you going to get to 40 billion US market cap? How, how do you do that? Well, commodity price always helps. <laughs> <laughs> Which you can't control. Get gold up over 2000. Right. No, I, you know, I think the business model is a very sound business model, but don't never, ever, we're not tied to always having to do transactions. There's times to make acquisitions and there's times not to. There's times to to reap from, from the garden that you have sown. And, and so, um, you know, we have to always maintain balance and make sure that, that it makes sense for us to make these acquisitions. We really do put a heavy focus on quality and, and recognize that, that, you know, what we try to provide at Wheaton is a very, very low risk way to invest into precious metals that still delivers all the traditional upside of growth, of expansion capacity, of, of commodity exposure. And in fact, with the stream, it's leveraged commodity exposure because you do have that base production payment, which is fixed. You don't have any inflationary pressure on that on that uh, production payment, but you still get leveraged exposure. And, and yet, uh, from the risk perspective, you know, we, we invest into high quality mines that have a long track record of delivering on their production. We always adjust our overall guidance to reflect our beliefs. And so we own our overall number on an asset by asset basis. We'll always match our partners in terms of their guidance. But if you look at our overall number, it's typically about 10 to 15% lower than, than if you sum all the parts. And it's because that's what we believe. And we're, we tend to, we've got a really good track record of delivering on production. And so from from a risk perspective, what we're trying to provide is the the lowest risk uh, way of investing into precious metals with while retaining all the traditional high upside of 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 the mining industry in terms of growth and and and, and expansion capabilities and leveraged exposure. And so so we really do believe that this is the best way to to invest into precious metals. And so so you know where do where do we how do we get to 40 billion? We continue uh, looking for assets. The we are blessed with an industry that is is very capital intensive and does always need to uh, to find additional sources of capital. And so we'll continue to to feed you know that that industry as as needed, but we're going to be selective. Um, you know, we do have a, a policy in our company of of celebrating our nose, celebrating some of the projects that we haven't invested into as much as the ones we have. That's uh, that's you know that's something to always recognize in terms of um, um, making sure that you have a good, strong, open environment that that really allows some good critical analysis and has give everyone a voice in terms of concerns and such like that and make sure that we make wise investments. And, and you know, when I look at the world, uh, I really do think that gold is is going to be even more important on the financial uh, spectrum when I look around uh, at what's going on in the world. And so so I'm confident that we'll get there on, on commodity price alone, but we're going to add growth to that. 
All right. My last question, uh, internally, when your people, your team is looking at the gold price and the silver price, can you give us like a three-year projection, maybe some of what are you're anticipating in terms of the commodity price or the gold and silver price? Some people don't like when you call gold a commodity. <laughs> well, and as chair of the World Gold Council right now, I probably, uh, you know, should, I, I really do hesitate. I mean, I always answer that with higher, right? It's just... If you sit and look around the world at hard assets and how and, and something like gold, where it's getting tougher and tougher to find the ore bodies, it's getting tougher and tougher to permit the ore bodies, to build these, the capital costs, the infrastructure, it's getting more and more challenging. It's a it's a limited asset that has limited accessibility. And 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 then you you're you measuring the value of that asset. Currently, we tend to value gold in US dollars. We measure how many US dollars up against that. Well, you know, the U.S. dollar is by far the strongest currency in the world. There's no doubt about that. And it is going through some real strength here of late, especially relative to other currencies. And I always encourage everyone to, to you know, when you look at gold and, and maybe you're uh, you know upset that gold isn't uh, performing as well as, uh, as it should be in U.S. dollars, go, go look at it in other currencies around the world. It is actually doing quite well in other currencies around the world. And, and it's the fact that the U.S. dollar is so strong. But you know, is is that where you want to? Uh, you know, do, do you want to really ride? You know, do you have that much confidence in the U.S. dollar? And there's just so many fundamental challenges to continued strength in in, in the U.S. dollar and in fiat currencies. Right now, I think it's the best of a bad bunch of apples, and uh, and that's why I do think gold is going to become incredibly more important. And so, so in terms of forecasting, I will I will tell you that when it when it comes to us making investments, we will never pay a higher price than the spot price because. As much as I've been in the gold industry now for 30 plus years, um, I still can't tell you what the price of gold is going to be tomorrow. So I what are you using the calculation, like a two-year trailing average or when you do your no, economics? We, so we typically we typically uh, start at the spot price for gold production today, and then we drop to a long-term price that's anywhere between about 70% to 95% of the spot price, depending on where we feel we are in the cycle. Currently, we're using 85 to 90% of the spot price as a long-term price. And, and we adjust that based on the spot price. If it was $2,100 today, we'd be starting at $2,100 for gold. If it was eight, what is it's around $1,850 right now. And so, so our long-term price. And, and we can't really you know, we can't really vary much from that. Uh, you know, where most of our flexibility comes from is where do we feel we are in the cycle? And we do think that that there is some some optionality to the upside. And so, so the commitment back to our shareholders, of course, is we will not make investments based on my belief that gold is going higher. Um, I'm not going to risk my shareholders' capital that way. My our, our approach is to uh, to make accretive acquisitions based on the current framework of gold prices, so that I can promise to my shareholders that we will deliver on a, on a good quality operating asset that's got a, a successful operating track record, high single digit returns, and if it's a development project, low double digit returns, assuming a flat commodity price. And, and if we see upside in commodity prices, then, then that just um, adds and compounds the returns back to our shareholders. And, and to date, we created this company back in 2004, and uh, we're averaging about 20% back to our shareholders. And so, uh, you know, that's been very successful for us to give that foundation, that base investment thesis where you, where you are delivering reasonable rates of returns, but then you get the exposure to precious metals. 
Yeah, it's been impressive what you've been able to do. And nobody can argue with the wisdom of, of your model of business, the royalty streaming uh, model of business. But I got to throw in one more question as you were talking. Um, so uh, sorry that I said that was the last question, but you have no so many junior mining speculators. Thousands of junior mining speculators are listening to us. And I invest in companies from $5 million market cap, usually up to about $100 million market cap. So um, you're in a total different league, but for someone like me and the thousands of listeners that speculate in these smaller junior miners, what would be your parting advice or words of wisdom? Uh, if you've got a Wheaton stamp of approval on that, you've had a very, very critical analysis. We invest in a lot of companies that have market caps in that range. And, uh, and so if you've got a third party like Wheaton, that especially Wheaton, where we really pride technical due diligence. Um, you know, we really put a lot of focus on that, and we have very, very strong teams in that front. Uh, those are those are some of the hidden opportunities. These the reason that they're doing streams with us is because they're undervalued relative to their asset value, and the reason that we're doing streams with them is because we believe in these projects. We think that these are good good quality projects. And so, if you've got if you've got a you know if you see Wheaton doing a stream into Sabina or Generation or uh, these, uh, in the reason we're there is because these are sound projects that will be mines at some time in the future. And uh, and and I think that's that has to give you more confidence in terms of uh, making that investment. And so, you know, watch what we do. And, uh, and, and I, I think that's a pretty good indication of where we, uh, you know, where we would, we would recommend uh, investing. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time. And thank you for joining me today, Randy. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.